I wanted to let you know that uh, after Denny introduced me uh, very kindly, first I said thank you to him. And then I said, if I'm the greatest, one of the greatest men you, need to, you, you, you know, you need to get out more. <laughs> so I don't know if we could like maybe get him on a trip or something, get him, I don't know. <laughs> Actually, the first thing when he said, our, our executive pastor, one of the greatest men I know, I thought, have I been replaced? I started looking around. So uh, I don't think I have been, so, but no, I, th- I appreciate that, Dan. And I appreciate being with uh, you all this morning. I am Bob Thomas, if you don't know. Um, I introduced myself to someone this morning that didn't know me. It's a great privilege to, to continue to meet new people, one of the privileges that, uh, that we have here. I want you to know that we're going to have a bit of a Bible drill this morning, and so I want you to get out your Bibles. If you don't have one, there should be one in the uh, seat, seat back in front of you or behind you if you're in the first row. So reach around and get one if you could. We're going to be looking at several passages this morning, and I've actually asked uh, the, the folks in the booth to uh, put these up here so that you can follow along. But we're going to be looking at three, and I just want you to find them and mark them, probably not with your fingers because you're going to run out of fingers and not be able to, to turn your Bible. But the first one is Acts chapter 9. That's uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, so beginning of the, towards the beginning of the New Testament. And then Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 22. So those are in the same book. Those are kind of easy. And then Romans chapter 12. If you could mark those three passages in your Bible, that would be good. You see, I don't get the opportunity that often to speak, as you know, once or twice a year. So I didn't really think you'd mind if I just went ahead and preached three sermons today. (laughs) Apparently someone someone cares they're leaving now. So no, don't, don't go. Uh, No, it's not really true. I'm not going to preach three sermons, but we are going to look at those three passages of Scripture, not in order, not all at once, but as we go through the service. We're going to be talking this morning about being transformed, transformation. What's interesting about that word, if you you pay attention to headlines, if you look at uh, or listen to the news, the word transform or transforming or being transformed, transformation is happening quite, you hear it quite a bit. I mean, we're going to transform Medicare. We just read that the other day. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, I think it's probably been transformed enough. You know, we, we transformed healthcare. Uh, I don't think that, I think the reason, one of the, one of the reasons that word's popular is because we don't like the word change, so people use transform instead because it somehow sounds less painful or easier. What's really interesting, if you read some articles that have those he- uh, headlines or if you look at that word in print in the news, it's really, it means different things to different people, to be honest with you. Uh, that, that, that word can mean a variety of things depending on what the person wants it to mean. And I think what we're going to do this morning, which is important, is for us to look at the word transform in its biblical meaning, what it means to believers to be transformed. When the Bible uses that word, it, it's speaking of transformation that happens in the believer's life. God actually commands us to be transformed. That's one of the verses you looked up that we'll read later in Romans. And and I want to delve into that meaning this morning. What does that mean for us? I want to start by looking at someone who's quite well known to uh, many of you, but some of you may not know a whole lot about him and wrote much of the New Testament, and that's the Apostle Paul. So I want to give you some background into his life, uh, tell you a little bit about him so that we'll have a a firm foundation to, to look at how he was transformed and then apply that to the transformation that all of us are, are commanded to experience in our lives. The first thing that you might not know about Paul is that when he was born, his name really wasn't really Paul, was it? It was Saul. 
He was born about the same time as Jesus, probably a few years later. And he was born a, a Jew into a very devout Jewish family. And in fact, when he was quite young, 10, 11, 12, he was sent from his hometown to Jerusalem to attend a, really a school for Pharisees. And you might or might not know that Pharisees were religious teachers of the day. In fact, the Pharisees was a specific sect that was known for keeping the laws very strictly. And Paul not only attended a school for Pharisees, he, he attended the best school for Pharisees. In fact, he says in, in some of his writings later that he was one of his professors, if you will, one of his teachers was one of the best known teachers, one of the men that the Jews considered to be one of the best teachers of a Jewish religion ever. It was kind of like going to Harvard or to Yale as an example. And Paul, not only, not only did he attend there, he excelled there. He did very well. He was noticed. He, as he grew, he sort of became part of the in crowd, part of the inner circle, if you will, as he grew in, in knowledge and stature. He became a, a, an expert in the law and a great debater of the law. He was a, a great defender of, of his faith. And he understood uh, more than most the importance of defending that faith and standing again for those laws that he felt were so important. One of the things that happened to him as he, as he grew was that he, be, he came, became uh, really belligerent to those that believed anything different than himself. Specifically, he began to hate Christians, people that followed and believed in Jesus Christ. He, became an, uh, uh, he began to pursue them, to persecute them. And in fact, whenever he could, he had them killed. To put it succinctly, Paul hated followers of Christ, and he did it all, he did all in his power to see that they were put to death. In fact, the first time we read about Saul in the New Testament is in the book of Acts. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read one verse. But in, in Acts chapter 7, it's the story of Stephen, who is the first martyr uh, of, of Christendom. And, and there are Pharisees, in fact, that are about to stone Stephen for what he believes and what he is professing to be true. And verse 57 of Acts 7 says this, At this they, the Pharisees, covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. The first time we hear of Saul. And then verse 1 follows that up of chapter 8. It says, and Saul approved of their killing him. That event, that martyrdom of Stephen, that killing of Stephen, really was the, the beginning of a great persecution for this new group of people, this new group of people who trusted and believed in Christ as Savior. Many of them scattered to various regions uh, of, uh, of, the, of the, the world, really, and continued to preach the truth that Jesus was the Messiah. Saul, however, continued to pursue and punish those who followed Christ. And so in Acts chapter 9, which is one of the places I had you marked just a minute ago, we're going to read the first two verses. After that, don't close that. We're going to read some more in just a second. But let's look at the first two verses of Acts chapter 9. It says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, 
he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. The phrase here, any who belong to the way, refers to those who believed Jesus Christ as to be their savior. It really is, is, is referring to Christians. It's just that they weren't yet called Christians. That happens later in the New Testament. So that's Saul. Bible paints a, a pretty clear picture of who he was, what he thought about Jesus, what he thought about his claims that he was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. His focus was to destroy them and convince people not to follow that false teaching. He was convinced he knew the truth, and he didn't want anyone to contradict that truth. As time went on, he began to really become sort of a rising star, if you will, among the group. He was noticed. He was popular among the Pharisees. In fact, he was kind of a tool that they used to to persecute this group. You could say that his star was on the rise, that his star was growing brighter. But all of that was about to change, as we're going to read here this morning in Acts 9, verse 3, and the following verses. So follow along, please, with me. Acts 9, verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. I have to pause there and say, basically what, Lord is, what, what Ananias is saying is, are you sure? God was sure. This is what he says. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see once again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. I know that story is familiar to many of you, but it it is an amazing story. And it is amazing what God then did with Paul's life, still Saul. You know, Saul might have thought that he was the bright, shining star and that his star was growing brighter. But on the road to Damascus, he saw a light much brighter than his own. He encounters the very person that he's been persecuting, the very one. He's been persecuting people, having them beaten and thrown into prison because they believe in Jesus, that he was the Messiah. And now Saul meets that very person on the road 
to Damascus. He is confronted by him. And this encounter changed Saul in many ways. Some of the changes were instant. Some take a few days. Others take years as he is slowly transformed throughout his life. Sometimes transformation is a, is a rapid thing, happens quickly. Other times it takes time and it goes slowly. The change was so drastic that Saul's name was changed to Paul. We see that in Acts 13.9. So if you're wondering how that happened, it happened. His name was changed to Paul. And it literally was a, a sign that he became a completely different person. That's why we don't talk about the Apostle Saul. We talk about the Apostle Paul. Let's look at a few things that happened in his life as a result of the encounter with the living Lord Jesus. First, let's look at how Paul's beliefs about Jesus were transformed. Paul had never met Jesus until that day on the road to Damascus, but he still had strong beliefs about him. He still believed that he was a liar, that he was a false prophet. He believed that what he taught was leading people away from the true, the true way, really the truth of the Old Testament scriptures. He was certain of those facts. But when he met Jesus, he, he discovered that he, was, he had been wrong. What he discovered about Jesus was he was actually the savior of the world, and more than that, the actual son of God. Paul realized that in an instant. What happened was that Paul was, remember he was blind for three days, and then Ananias comes and lays his hands on him. And in reality, Paul hadn't just been blind for three days. He had been blind a lot longer than that. He had never really been able to see clearly because of the religious glasses, the religious blinders that he had on. It wasn't until those scales fell off or whatever they were from his eyes that he truly saw the truth for the first time in his life. His blindness had been a lifelong problem and it was cured by the Lord with the help of Ananias as he laid his hands on him and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He realizes that Jesus was in fact who he claimed to be. This truth, Paul says, was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Certainly he spent several days, Scripture says, in Damascus with the believers there. I'm sure that he talked with them and they told, them, he, they told him what they knew of, of the Lord and answered questions that he might have had. Paul says in Galatians 1.17 that immediately after his conversion, he went into Arabia and then eventually returned back to Damascus. We don't know exactly what took place there, but certainly either in Arabia or in Damascus, Paul began to, if you will, connect the dots. He knew the Old Testament law. He, he knew the law. He knew the prophecies about the Messiah. And now he knew Jesus Christ was alive and that he was the Messiah. And it seems pretty clear that he spent some time Understanding how Jesus fulfilled the law, how Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies that had been made about the Messiah. It's clear from other passages that Paul recognized he understood about Christ and the gospel because of the Holy Spirit revealing it to himself. It wasn't something he learned because of his own intelligence. He didn't figure it out on his own. He asserts, in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that it is through the Holy Spirit 
that he can understand spiritual realities. He says, without the Holy Spirit, it's not possible to understand those realities. In fact, what he's saying is that's not only true about him, that's true about all believers. That the spiritual things of the world are, are revealed to us. We are able to discern them because of the Holy Spirit revealing it to us, revealing those things to us. It's clear from Paul's writings that his knowledge about Jesus and the Holy Spirit grew as his ministry and life progressed. This transformation continued in his life. It was an ongoing process. It's also clear that as his life progressed, he understood, about, he understood more about God's forgiveness. He understood more about God's grace. In fact, he is called the, the apostle of grace. He became, he became fascinated, really. He was overwhelmed by God's grace in his life and the life of believers. So as his life progressed, his understanding progressed of who Jesus was. He, he, he understood more of Jesus' ability to forgive, his ability to love. Paul continued to grow in that understanding. Much of what he believed about Jesus was wiped away pretty quickly. But other aspects of what he believed took years to be transformed in his life. That's the transformation process. I want to look at another area of Paul's life that was transformed. But before we do that, it seems appropriate to ask, what is our understanding of Jesus? What do we believe about him? Because that's really what Paul was confronted with on the road. How well do we understand his grace and do we grasp his righteousness? I believe those are good questions to ask ourselves. Our understanding should be continually transformed as we grow in our walk with the Lord. Another area that was transformed in Paul's life was his view of who he was. Paul's view of himself changed drastically. Paul saw himself, as I said, as this rising star. Paul, he was convinced that he was doing what was right, that he was fighting for God, and that what he was doing was righteous and correct. He was full of zeal to serve God by killing these people. That, that's exactly who he was. His view of himself was that he was doing the right thing, that he was on the right side, if you will. But after his encounter with Jesus, he understands that wasn't true. Can you, under, can you imagine for a moment his, when, he, when he recognized he was actually fighting against God? What he believed was a lie was 100% true. And what he had been fighting for and he believed was true was 100% a lie. That's what happened to Paul. He understood that about himself. It led him in many ways to be humble, especially as time went on. His understanding of who he was was transformed. In fact, later in his life, he calls himself the worst of sinners or chief among sinners. And again, I think it's because he realized he had been persecuting the very one, the only one who could give him eternal life. And, and that's also why he was blown away by God's grace, that in spite of that, God called him and extended his grace to him and saved him. And Paul then used himself as an example to say, if God can save me, God can save anyone. His view of himself was radically changed 
at that encounter on the road. But it also was transformed over time as he learned more and more about who he was in Christ, his standing, his security, his purpose. And he, not only did he understand that, but then he, he wrote so that we would understand that about ourselves. God used him as an instrument. So we as believers know so much about our standing in him and our security and our ability to trust him. Once again, it seems uh, wise to just take a moment and ask, what is our understanding of who we are in Christ? As the transformation process in our lives continues, we should understand more and more about who we are in Christ, what our security is in him. It should have a tremendous impact in our lives as we understand that come to fully realize it, to comprehend who we are in Christ. Do we have a firm foundation in who we are that leads to confidence? Or are we really not sure at times what rights and privileges we have as believers? The question really is, are, is our understanding being continually transformed? So I've looked at Paul's beliefs about Jesus and how they were transformed, and certainly we've looked at how his view of himself was changed and transformed. I want to spend a few minutes talking about something that's maybe a little easier to see and and measure, and that is I want to look at how Paul's behavior was transformed. This is easy to see because of the incredible turnaround that happened in his life. As I said earlier, he was killing or having Christians killed. He went from that to telling people, that Jesus Christ was the only way to have eternal life. It's not hard to see that change. It's a drastic turnaround. He went from hating these people, these Christians, to loving them, calling them brothers and sisters, being willing really to lay down his own life for them. That's a radical change in behavior. Again, there were periods of rapid change, some periods of slower change. But overall, there was a progression. Paul became a different person. Some of it happened immediately, some took time. This process of transformation is a foundational principle in the life of every believer. I've used Paul as an example, but really we could use lots of other people in Scripture as examples. Peter comes to mind. Someone who who had a lot to learn, but you know what? He learned it, and he was transformed, and God used him in mighty ways. Paul makes clear that the transformation process is very important, and he makes that clear in Romans 12, which is one of the places I had you mark earlier. So if you could open your Bibles to Romans 12. You thought I forgot, didn't I? But people are thinking, I forgot. I don't know if you did, but Romans 12, very important verses, and I want to just look at them for a couple of moments, and and certainly we won't go into detail uh, in these verses. There's lots of information here. It says this, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. A proper understanding of these verses is is critical for us as we look to comprehend the process of transformation and what it looks like in our lives. 
as I said, uh, th- this could be uh, three, three messages or four, these two verses, and I'm not going to delve into them, but I, I, I want to just focus on the, the transformation aspect. I do, however, want to say that the two verses are, are definitely connected, and, and they flow one into the other. Verse 1 is saying we are to offer ourselves totally and completely all that we have into God's service as a living sacrifice. And that can only happen, verse 2 says, as we do not allow ourselves to be conformed by the world, but rather we allow ourselves to be transformed so that we will be able to know God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's the big picture, but I want us to focus on the transformation aspect as we specifically focus on this. The idea that is conveyed here is, is very clear. It is that we are to allow ourselves to be transformed. We don't do the transforming. We are, allow, we are to allow ourselves to be transformed. We don't will ourselves to be different and become different. That's not what this verse is saying. The transformation cannot be an act of our will. Rather, the idea is that we are to allow ourselves to be transformed as we are acted upon by another agent, an outside force. God, by his Holy Spirit, is the one who is transforming us, is the idea of this verse. This transformation also, it's clear from uh, the structure that the transformation doesn't happen instantly. It's an ongoing, lifelong process. It's sort of some, some new things coming in, some old things going out, some more new coming in, some more old going out. It's a process. It's not a quick thing. To try to give you a, a word picture of, of that process, I, I want to see if I can paint a picture for you. Michelangelo, you may know this uh, quote. He said this, Every block of stone has a statue inside it, and it's the task of the sculptor to discover it. He's saying he starts with a block, and when he's finished... The statue's left. That really is a beautiful picture, I think, of biblical transformation. You see, the idea of transformation is that there's this piece of marble, let's say, this slab, and that's who we are. And the statue, the sculpture inside, this beautiful, unique statue, is is each of us fully transformed, fully transformed. And so the idea of transformation is that the Holy Spirit, little by little, over time, takes away the outside marble slab, sometimes with a a big hammer and a big chisel, sometimes with small taps of a hammer, perhaps with a brush. And, and, And he removes pieces little by little until finally, slowly, the process results in, in the statue that is beautiful and unique, and that is what remains, and the rest is gone. That's a picture of what transformation should be in our lives. The question I, I hope you're asking is, well, if we're not supposed to do the transforming, and it's up to the Holy Spirit, then I guess I can just kick back, watch football, if there is football this year. No, that's not true. We can't just kick back. So what do we do? What's our responsibility? The verse says that transformation comes through or by means of renewing our minds. What's that mean? What's that process? Well, again, the Holy Spirit is the one who is to renew our minds. But, but what is our role? How does the Holy Spirit do that? How, how does it occur? 
Well, I think the Holy Spirit uses a variety of means. He uses times like this on a Sunday morning. He uses times of worship. He uses small groups and Sunday school and, and Bible studies and one-on-one interactions with, excuse me, with people. But I think there's a, a key aspect to all of those things. It must be about God's Word. It must be about God's Word. Those times should be centered around God's Word. And I know that if you've been coming here long, you've heard Denny say, we want you to, to what? Be in the Word. Have you heard him say that? For those of you that aren't sleeping, have you heard him say that? He said, be in the Word. And that's why he has you open your Bibles and follow along in your Bibles because he wants you to get used to it and be in the Word. It's why we say that there's Bibles in front of you and if you don't have one at home, take one with you. And we, I'm saying that right now. If you don't have one at home and you'd like one, take it with you because we want you to be in the Word. What I want to do for the next few minutes is just talk to you about what exactly that means, though. Be in the Word. Because it's not enough to just read the Bible occasionally or to read the Bible when we have a crisis in our life and we're looking for some help. It's not even enough to read Saturday night, read the passage that Denny's going to speak on Sunday morning. That's a good thing. I hope you do it. It's why we call you and give it to you so that you can be prepared. But that's not sufficient. That's not enough. Being in the Word takes a commitment. It takes effort. It takes time. It's a constant, ongoing reading and studying of God's Word. And even then, I should point out, it's not just for informational purposes. It's not just to get more information. It's to be a search for understanding of who God is and who I am in Him, who we as believers are in Him. It's never to be simply an academic exercise, but instead a spiritual pursuit. Being in God's word means that we spend enough time in it to take in enough information so that the Holy Spirit can use it to renew our mind. That's what it means. To cause us to think differently. His desire is that we read enough and we study enough and we know the word enough that he can use that information to chisel away at that statue so that today a little more is visible of that beautiful, unique statue than was visible last week, than was visible yesterday. That's what he desires to have happen, and that's the transformation process that's being talked about here. That's why we need to meditate on God's word. What does that mean? Meditate, think about it, dwell on it. Don't just read it and say, okay, I've I've done that book. I'm I'm done with that book this year. Now I can move on to... To Luke, we need to meditate on it. We need to memorize it. We need to allow it to be part of us. That's really what this passage is talking about, and it's what we mean when we say be in the Word. It's a continual, regular, ongoing process so that we learn more and more about Him and who He wants us to be so that the Holy Spirit can use that to renew our minds and to transform us. So often, I have to admit, when I think of transformation, I think of behavior. I think of habits. 
I want to transform a habit. I want to transform behavior either in my life or in someone else's life. But what we see from Paul's life is that's not what happened for him. The change that took place was inward. He understood so many things about Jesus and and so many things about himself that he never understood because of those blinders that he had on. And, And that led immediately to some change in his behavior. And then as time went on and he learned more and more and grew more and more intimate with Christ, the behavior changed more and more and more. That inward transformation allowed Paul to be beaten many times and still give praise to the Lord. Allowed him to be shipwrecked and still trust the Lord. And allowed him to experience what happens in Acts 16. So I'd like you to look at that. That's the last place I had you mark earlier. Acts 16, verse 22. Acts 16, verse 22 says this. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. That's what I call a bad day. This is what it says in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. And I know this story continues, and it is phenomenal. God frees them all, but they don't leave, and the the jailer sees that, and he is converted to Christ because of it, because of their testimony, because of what God does. But I just want to submit to you that you don't go through a day like that. You don't get beaten and thrown in prison and then put in stocks and then praise the Lord, singing hymns to him by relying on your own strength. That doesn't happen if we're relying on ourselves to do the best we can on our own. That type of behavior can only happen because of an inward transformation. And that's the type of transformation that we're talking about in Romans 12, 2. It's not an overhaul of our lifestyle. It's not getting rid of some bad habits changing my behavior a little here and a little there. It is a transformation caused by the Holy Spirit. And I'm convinced it can only happen as we spend time in the Word, meditating on it, reading it, spending time in it. And I want you to know that I'm convinced that 30 minutes or 35 minutes a week in this place, in almost every instance, is not enough to cause real transformation in anyone's life. It takes more than that. I'm convinced of it. I'm not alone in that idea, in that position. I want to read two quotes for you from two men that you, some of you I'm sure have heard of. One is Vance Havner, preacher from a long time ago in the mid-1900s. He says this about God's word says, the storehouse of God's word was never meant for mere scrutiny, not even primarily for study, but for sustenance. 
It's not simply a collection of fine proverbs and noble teachings for men to admire and quote as they might Shakespeare. It is ration for the soul. It's food for the soul. That's what we mean when we say be in the word. Do we treat it like that? The second quote is from A.W. Tozier. Those of you that are Alliance certainly know his name. He was with the Alliance for many years, also about the same time, mid-1900s. He was an eloquent spokesman, really, for the Alliance, as well as for the Lord. And he wrote over 40 books, spent a lot of time talking about God's Word. And this is what he says about the Bible. He says, read it much, read it often, brood over it, think over it, meditate over it. Meditate on the Word of God day and night. When you are awake at night, think of a helpful verse. When you get up in the morning, no matter how you feel, think of a verse and make the Word of God the important element in your day. The Holy Ghost wrote the Word. I know some of you have heard this before. And if you make much of the Word, He will make much of you. It is through the Word of God that He reveals Himself. Between those covers is a living book. God wrote it, and it is still vital and effective and alive. God is in this book. The Holy Ghost is in this book. And if you want to find him, go into this book. That was true in the 50s. It's really true today because of all the voices that we hear. The transformation that God desires us to experience can only occur if we're in God's word and we have the view of God's word like Tozer just described. I'm convinced of it. It's not easy. It takes effort. It takes discipline. Those aren't very popular words because they're hard words. But I want to challenge you this morning to allow yourself to be transformed by the Holy Spirit as Romans 12, 2 tells us to be. And I'm convinced, and my prayer is that you are as well, or you will be soon, that that can only happen as we see God's word as more than a nice book with nice verses and nice stories and some funny names. But we see it instead as vital to our spiritual lives, as vital to our spiritual lives as food is to our physical lives. We can't live without food, without nourishment, and we cannot be transformed without God's word being a regular part of our lives. Not once a week. Would you eat only once a week? I don't think so. I am convinced that many Christians have believed a lie. And I confess to you that I've believed that lie in the past. And that lie is that we can be transformed by a diet of occasional, small doses of Scripture. I don't believe that lie anymore. We need to be in God's Word regularly, consistently, deeply. Because it's only then that that block of marble can be transformed by the Holy Spirit from a a useless slab of rock into the beautiful, unique statue that God desires each of us to be. Let's pray.
Holy God, I just thank you for your word and for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you give us all that we need to be transformed by you. Lord, I know that's the desire of so many hearts in this room. And I pray that you would just continue to challenge us, help us to know how to do that specifically in our lives. Just thank you for your love and your commitment to us. You never leave us nor forsake us, that in the process of transformation, you are with us. Just thank you and give you praise for that. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.